Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and be with us tonight. Open our hearts to your truth and help us to learn to love you more. Mother Mary, please pray for us. Help us as women and also the men in our lives to learn the truth about what it means to, to be truly feminine and help us to live that out according to the will of God in our lives. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, before I start, can everybody hear me okay? Because I know my voice isn't probably as loud as Chris's. I just want to um, tell you about some excellent books that are out there on feminism and Catholicism, and it's such a huge topic that um, there's no possible way for me to really even touch on, even, on all the aspects of it. So I wanted to, for those of you that are interested in more reading on this, um, Alice von Hildebrand, who is, uh, was married to philosopher Diedrich von Hildebrand, who has many Catholic writings, she wrote a book called The Privilege of Being a Woman, which is a beautiful book about the privilege of being a woman. <laughs> and um, it really, this is a really beautiful book, a little bit philosophical, if you like that edge, but it's also very readable. Um, then the Holy Father also, of course, has On the Dignity, of on the Dignity and Vocation of Women, this um, encyclical, and he, um, he is obviously very philosophical, but this is also loaded with good things. This is a very practical book that's very, very easy to read. It's called Feminine, Free, and Faithful, and it's by Rhonda Shervin. And then another one that I have is called The Catholic Mystique. And the title, for maybe those of you that are familiar, in the 1970s, there was a book called The Feminine Mystique that was written that was not like this book. It was very pro-feminism. This is sort of, this is showing... Um, the, it's a, so the, the title is kind of a play on words. It's a Catholic mystique, and this is actually stories of converts to the Catholic faith, the women converts. And the, the two authors, um, or the two people that put together the stories, are Luth were Lutheran ministers, women Lutheran pastors, that converted, uh, one of them converted back to Catholicism, and one of them converted to Catholicism. So this is another really beautiful book. And then also... Um, just this year, there was a letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church on the collaboration of men and women in the Catholic Church and in the world. It was just written this May, and uh, you can get that. You could just, if you go to EWTN, you can get almost anything um, that the Holy Father has written or that the Holy Father has approved on women, and there's lots of good stuff on that. So um, I was going to just let you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of feminism, and then I'm going to move into the church's teaching on it and then give some practical applications, what that looks like, how to live it out. Let me just get these out of my way here. To start off with, um, feminism, a lot of times we, we connect it to the term women's liberation, and, which really is false because it didn't really liberate what happened with feminism, with the feminist movement, didn't really liberate women at all. 
but we, we usually connect it with that. And it started off, we could go way back to the 1920s when women were trying to be able to vote, and which was great. There was nothing wrong with that. And the motives back then were, were good. There was, there was a lot of positive results that came out of that because all they were trying to do was get women to be treated with the equal dignity and respect that they were created to be treated with. So, um, so that was good. So the, the initial startings of it were very good. Um, what happened, though, is in the 1960s, the church and the world were hit by a lot of confusion. At that time, everything was questioned, everything was challenged, and the changes that occurred at that time promised liberation or freedom from social and sexual taboos and also from enslavement for minorities and for women. The end result of this, which um, at that time also the church came out with the encyclical Humana Vitae, which one author I wrote actually says that if you want to know about what it means to be a woman in the church, read that encyclical. And um, so if you've never read that encyclical, I do highly recommend that. It was writ written during this very turbulent, <coughs> excuse me, very turbulent time. But the end result of that time was um, subjectivism and relativism triumphed. People no longer thought that they needed authority and they no longer needed the burdensome laws of marriage. They believed the church had an uninformed conception of man's sexual desires, and so women rebelled against the exploitation of their sex and the shameful subordination, and their shameful subordination to the male sex. Okay, this was the mindset coming out of the 60s. To this day, the secular feminists, however, still believe that in order to be truly free, they must survive without men. And all you have to do is get on the internet, type in feminism, and loads of things will come up, and you can just click. And every site, I checked out about 10 of them, and without fail, consistently, the underlying agenda in what they were trying to promote was freedom from men, to prove that they, they did not need men to live, to succeed, to survive. They believe that true freedom is only gained if they're liberated from anything that makes them a woman, because if they are a woman, they need men. And they're right about that. They're, there's no, that's true. And um, I'll go more into that later. So they do have a little bit of truth in their <laughs> philosophy, and that is they realize that if they continue to be a woman, they're going to need men. Because of this thought, however, the two things that are primarily rejected are marriage and motherhood. And those are two things that come up consistently also in the agenda of, of these feminists. So I want to take a look at each one of those. First, I'm going to take a look at it from their point of view. And then later on is when I'll take a look at it from the church's point of view. For marriage, some believe that the institution of marriage protects women in the same way that the institution of slavery was said to protect African Americans. That is, the words protection in this case is simply a euphemism for the word oppression. Okay, therefore, marriage in their minds needs to be abolished in the same way that slavery was in order for them to have freedom. Now, motherhood was, is the other thing that they strive to get rid of. 
this is thought, motherhood is thought only good when it is freely chosen, not imposed or unwanted in any way. They believe that women will only cease to be sex objects when they are liberated to a creativity beyond motherhood. So they truly believe that to, to be a mother is to just sort of exist. You have to become more creative than that. With these two things in mind and with their thoughts, contraception and abortion have got to stay legal in their minds because that's what's going to keep them able to have control of these two aspects of their lives. But the question is, is that really true? Are they truly free when they reject that which makes them female? Does anybody out here, raise your hand, do you know a radical secular feminist that is truly happy, truly feminine, or truly free? I honestly have yet to meet one that is. Most, of, most people that I have met that have very strong feelings in this area come across very, very angry, very frustrated, and we'll, we'll examine why later. They are enslaved, they are actually enslaved by everything that they thought would free them. Contraceptives, abortion, careers, now I'll stop here for a second, careers in and of themselves are not bad. Um, but when the career is looked at as where someone is getting their fulfillment, that's when things have become disordered, okay? Uh, when they're looking for ambition, they're looking for self-fulfillment. They're also looking for their fulfillment in uh, many, sometimes many unmarried relationships. The truth is that modern culture is very hostile to authentic femininity. It tells women that something is wrong with the way that she is, so she better reject it. Okay, now that's the bad news. <laughs> the good news is that the Catholic Church does not believe that. In the 1960s, the Catholic Church was rejected by many people. So that in and of itself is good news because they were rejecting all sorts of things and they, they were rejecting, they saw that, that the Catholic Church held women in the proper esteem. They were rejecting anything that held women in the proper esteem. Nuns and priests, lay men and women alike, rejected the church because she was, thought, she was thought to be primitive in her teachings on men and women, sex and marriage, submission, male priesthood, just to name a few. In fact, though, the church honors and raises up women because the church respects women and encourages them in who they were created to be, nothing more and nothing less. Okay, this is what makes the Catholic Church unique. And this is where I'll, I want to stop for just a second from my notes and focus and just talk a little bit about women priesthood in this light. Because the church realizes and because the church upholds the dignity of who a woman was created to be, there is no possible way that a woman can become a priest because she's not made to be a priest. There's, there, uh, most other churches have gone, have left this idea and, and will ordain women. But the church still realizes that a woman is created uniquely and has certain gifts and that is simply not her role. It goes a little bit deeper than that as far as like how she was created and I'll touch on it a little bit later. But that's why 
that is one example of how the church holds, upholds women and expects them to be only who they were made to be, nothing more and nothing less. Now, before being able to have a full understanding of true feminism, we have to go back to how and why we, were, we were created. So I'm going to go back to Genesis, and I know that we've heard these scriptures a lot, but I want you to listen to them closely this time in light of how woman was created. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about that. In the first creation narrative, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we're told, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God created man in his image. In the divine image he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, that's the first creation narrative. There's two. Chapter 2 has another narrative, and we're, in that narrative we're told, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For out of her man, this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. Now, there was a French socialist named Simone de Beauvoir, that was, I believe she was, uh, wrote in like the 30, 1930s, 1940s. And she took this, these two passages and she said, now obviously God didn't, have, didn't care about women at all. From the beginning, women were nothing because he created them last. And Alice von Hildebrand, who I, the first book I showed you, The Privilege of Being a Woman, she contradicts that by saying, but if you look at the whole order of creation, it gets bet God gets better as he goes. And so he saved the best for last. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of a, a cute um, analogy. So in hearing these scripture passages, we know that our dignity lies in this. We are created in the image and likeness of God. God made us the way that we are. Our dignity lies in our being, not in our doing. Okay? Now, I want you to, I want to, we're going to go back, and I want you to think about the two, notice the two things that Genesis says right away after the creation of man and woman. In the first creation narrative, the first thing God says, God blessed them saying, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's motherhood. And that's one of the things that the feminist movement is bound and determined to either control or abolish. In the second creation narrative, verse 24, the first, the first verse after woman is created says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two of them become one body. There's marriage. 
So you can see how this is a huge spiritual battle. That because of the fall and because of today what we have known as the influence of the feminist movement, we are in a battle that it is really vital that we as Catholic women, Christian women, and the men who love and support us, have to pray against because we're surrounded by this. This is, this is how most of us have actually been taught. This is how we've been raised. Even if we've been raised in a good Catholic home, this oftentimes can seep in. And so that's why I say this is a real area of prayer that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help enlighten our minds and our hearts about this. Help us to think the way that God wants us to think. Not the way that all the magazines tell you to think when you're standing in the grocery line. I mean, I'll tell you what, I can go to the grocery store and if I'm frustrated at Bob's, all I gotta do is pick up a People magazine and I'm gonna be justified in every single thing I feel. And that's not the teaching of the church. That's not what God asks of us. And so that's why we have to train ourselves not to listen to that and to listen to what God tells us. And that's what I'm gonna move into now. Okay, so in contrast to secular feminism, we were created to be mothers and to be wives. That doesn't mean we have to be married, and it doesn't mean that we have to have children. It just means that we have to have an openness to that, that we have to understand that that is the truth about who we were created to be, and that we, there needs to be that receptivity. Okay, and I'll, I'll touch a little bit more about on that later. We were not made to exist without men, and they were not made to exist without women. We were created for each other, to be with each other, and to help each other. When you look at the word human, it means man and woman together. It doesn't mean just the man. And when man is referred to, oftentimes in scripture, it means men and women together. Men and women together were created in the image and likeness of God, not one or the other of them. They are together. They're just expressed in two different sexes because that's the way that God would have it be. But they are equal dignity, they are, were created with equal dignity. To deny or reject this though is, is to put into frustration not only the laws of God, but the laws of nature as well. It immediately puts men and women in direct conflict with each other. Women start acting more like men, men forget their God-given ability to lead, and then they get frustrated, they in turn can rebel against that frustration and become either overly aggressive or overly passive. Then the woman gets stronger and you can see the vicious cycle occurring. So with that in mind, I want to take a, little, I want to take a look at what Pope John Paul II says about these two things. And I'm going to give direct quotes, so bear with me because he's very philosophical. I'm going to speak slowly, but try to really listen to this because the words are awesome. In Familiaris Consortia, which is the Christian family in the modern world, Pope John Paul II tells us, the institution of marriage is not an undue inference by society or authority, nor is it the extrinsic imposition of a form. Rather, it is an interior requirement of the covenant of conjugal love which is publicly affirmed as unique and exclusive in order to live in complete fidelity to the plan of God, the Creator. 
A person's freedom, far from being restricted by this fidelity, is secured against every form of subjectivism or relativism, and it is made a sharer in creative wisdom. Wow, that is totally different from what we're told by the feminist movement. Then the next thing that he talks about is, um, in commenting on marriage and motherhood, we are reminded in the words of Gaudium et Spes that man cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of self, man being men and women. We cannot fully find ourselves unless we have given ourselves as a gift. Okay, and then again in Familiaris Consortio, we are reminded that in its most profound reality, love is essentially a gift. Thus, the couple, while giving themselves to one another, give not just themselves, but also the reality of children who are a living reflection of their love, a permanent sign of conjugal unity, and a living and inseparable synthesis of their being a mother and a father. So obviously the Catholic Church, right from the words of Pope John Paul II, does not look down on women, does not look down on motherhood or marriage. And I think we all realize that. Hearing it, though, for me, really was like, wow. You know, because a lot of times I can just often hear the complaints from other people and, and don't take the time to read, what are we really being taught in the church? So a woman is not created to seek individual autonomy and control of her own life, as the secular feminists think, but she's created to seek fulfillment in a final letting go of self in order that God's will might be done, a fulfillment that comes from the emptying of herself that she might become an instrument of God's will. If you, for, if you remember nothing tonight, remember this next thing. This capacity for receptivity and this love which seeks to serve is the true nature of being a woman. It's as simple as that. The capacity to receive and the love that seeks to serve. That's the true nature right there of being a woman. Okay, now when I first read this, I was like, okay, the receptivity part, that's okay. But seeking to serve, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of, that can kind of be hard to embrace, especially in the way that sometimes in our heart you want to serve, but then you feel like, gosh, is anybody noticing that I'm serving? Every other person that walks in my path here? But we have to remember that Jesus, he raised up those who served. He said himself, I came to serve not to be served. So in serving, as, which is what women are called to do, we are, we are asked to be like Jesus. That's awesome. Like it's, I mean, all we have to do is that. You know, I mean, it's, it really, it's, there's nothing complicated about that. And that really is a beautiful, a beautiful thing to ponder. We can also see this femininity in the Catholic Church because she's not just an institution among others, but she's a living entity whose very nature is feminine and maternal. She is the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. Furthermore, Mary is the icon of the church, and the priest is the icon of Christ. The church gives Mary as the model of femininity. In Mary, we see all the feminine virtues lived out perfectly. 
She is who we should look to on how to become more of who God calls us to be. Now, having graduated from Franciscan University of Steubenville, I heard that ad nauseum. And I kind of started tuning it out because I was like, well, that's great. I believe that. And then I took it to prayer and I was like, whoa, think about this. First of all, Mary had all the preternatural gifts, which means she had all the gifts that Adam and Eve have be had before the fall. She had them all after the fall. So she has all these gifts. And yet she was submissive to Joseph, a regular man. I mean, if you just think about that for a minute, it makes, for me, it makes me realize, okay, <laughs> I need to just relax and realize that this is really a gift. It is really a gift to be able to be subordinate. Now, if you're not married, obviously, um, this comes in the form of being subordinate to the authority of the church and to Christ. And that would go for a religious, a consecrated religious, or someone living a generous single life. So we need to really take this, take seriously, take this idea of submission and subordination seriously to prayer. Because when we hear that, most of us, and even probably most men, don't even want to hear that. Because it, we're so ingrained with what that means. But in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 24, it says, as the church is subordinate to Christ, so wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. In everything. In everything. And I remember praying about this for the first time, and I was like, come on, Lauren. There's got to be a few things out there that I don't really have to do this in. But the, the reality is, is I don't have a full understanding of what this means, and God is still teaching me. Mary did. Mary lived this beautifully. And even after Joseph and Jesus had both died, Scripture tells us that in her humility, she allowed John to take care of her, to take her into his home and to care for her. She was comfortable with who she was as a woman, and so she had a proper understanding of what subordination means. She didn't need to prove anything, and she didn't care to prove anything. And, she, and to, go on, to go further on, we can look to Mary in her, in her example of prayer and silence. Many times we are told in Scripture, she pondered all these things in her heart. Mary speaks very little in Scripture. Yet when you think of the Blessed Mother in Scripture, do you think of a silent, passive woman? No way. She had so many gifts and so much power, but she didn't utilize it in the way that sometimes we think power is utilized. It was all in proper order. She knew her proper place, and she pondered all these things in her heart first, before speaking. And even when she does get Jesus to do his first uh, miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, it's beautiful. She doesn't go up to him and say, okay, now, it's time for you to do your first miracle. I don't want any lip. I just want you to go out and do what you're supposed to do because I know that it's time. No. She says, they're out of wine. And he says, Jesus says to her, well, why does that concern me? knowing very well why it concerns him. And she says, she doesn't even say anything else except do whatever he tells you. She just looks to the people and says, do whatever he tells you. And she's done. 
And yet, she was the instrument by which God chose to bring about Jesus' first miracle. So I'm not talking about a doormat here. I'm, not even, I'm, not, I'm just talking about an understanding and a proper order of, of, what it, of, of the power that God has given a woman. It's a beautiful power. And I was trying to think of a different word other than power, just because of the connection that we often make with power. But I couldn't think of another one. So if anybody has one, feel free to tell me in the question and answer section. <laughs> But it's a, it's a beautiful, it's, a, it's just beautiful, the way that she is in Scripture. Um, so by this example, obviously, we could, we could really learn to first take things, to first ponder things in our heart as women before we speak, and then probably we wouldn't say three-fourths of the things that we don't really need to say anyway. The last thing that I want to speak of, though there are very many more virtues of Mary, is the way that she relinquished control of her life, her body, her dreams, and her plans. By her fiat, at at the Annunciation, and the fiat is when she said, I am the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to your word. That's, That's what I mean when I say by her fiat. She opened herself up to God and received whatever he had planned. She was a receptive vessel, not a controlling woman. She didn't even question, but she just simply opened herself up and let grace flow. So I just ask that we, as women and the men that are in our lives, pray that we can become more like this, that we can really embrace these virtues of the Blessed Virgin Mary, because it's hard in this day and age, and it's hard to have that proper balance. And the only way, really, that we can have that proper balance is through prayer. And when I say, I mean, I mean really going to God and directly asking him, what does this look like in my life? What are you calling me to do? And for the men, obviously, to, uh, to pray for the women in their lives. And, to, and it helps also just to have a proper understanding also of how God created us to be and the roles that we were intended to play in each other's lives. I realize that some of these things can be really difficult because, like I said, our society tells us otherwise. And we're bo- uh, we are bombarded with the world and with the feminist agenda everywhere that, everywhere that we go. Um, but we really, this is really the only path to freedom. This is the only path to peace. And this is the only path to joy and freedom from the anxieties and the pressures that we often feel in this world. Now, um, just in conclusion, I just want to say again that this doesn't mean that we don't utilize our gifts or that we become passive doormats. There is a big difference between choosing freely to serve and to love in the spirit of joy and between being angry inside but going through the service anyway. Okay, There's a big difference between that. And it is only through asking God in prayer where we can grow in that area and allowing him to change our hearts in that way. God has given, given women many gifts, and Pope John Paul II mentioned this off, met, mentions this often. He calls it the feminine genius, and he talks about how we need to bring those gifts of who we are as women into wherever we're at, into the workplace, into our families, into all of our encounters with anyone that we, that we come across. 
And that's what he refers to, if you've ever heard that term, the, the feminine genius. It's very simple. I was telling Chris, I searched long and hard to try to find out, what does this mean? And it's very simple. It's, it's having, it's understanding in humility who you are in the image of God. It's understanding the gifts that a woman has, and it's keeping them in proper order, and then bringing them wherever you, wherever you do your work or your play or your prayer. Okay, and the final thing that I want to say is, um, is imp how important it is to, to just keep things in proper order like, like Mary did, to always keep, uh, to always ponder things in our heart and take things to God our Father first. And then that way, by doing this, that harmony that I talked about in men and women that gets frustrated when, when women do start to uh, push their force a little bit, that harmony can get, we can bring that, we can help bring that harmony back into order between men and women in our lives. And then we will be living more how God actually created us to be. So thank you very much. And yeah. I don't even know how long I went. We walked 20 minutes, if that's okay. Um, what we're going to do, as normal, we'll, we'll have some time for public Q&A for 15 to 20 minutes, and then Shannon's going to be free to answer questions in private if anybody else wants to come up afterwards. Before that, though, I was going to do this at the very beginning, but I forgot. Another resource um, that if you are interested in what Shannon's been talking about is a book called Women in Christ Toward a New Feminism, and it's edited by Michelle Schumacher, who has a, degree, a doctorate in theology from uh, a, a theology school in... Switzerland, and it's, an, it's a collection of essays by, all, they're all women, and they're all philosophers or theologians. So it is heavy reading, but it, it just lays a great foundation for understanding what sort of feminism the Holy Father has been talking about that Shannon presented. And we do have it available at the diocesan offices, so I just want to mention that. But again, time for public questions. And please wait for Don, who has the microphone, to get to you. It's not a mic. You won't hear it through the speakers. It's just for the tape. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, let him get to you, and then go ahead and ask your question. Wait, hold on. He's going back there to someone first. You can be next. Shannon, I um, teach um, seniors at a high school and or religious ed, and I'm wondering what the best response to a person who, or this person has an abusive husband, and what their what their response is when you, when they say dealing with the scripture of wives be submissive to your husbands. Will you say the last part again? How do you respond to reconcile their thoughts of wives be submissive to your husbands when the husband is abusive? Okay. Um, he, talks, he asked about how do, you, how do you reconcile in your thoughts the scripture, wives be submissive to your husbands when you're in an abusive relationship? And this is a really, really good question. Um, what I would say is the first source of comfort that she could find is by looking to the lives of the saints. And by, there, are, there are married saints out there and blessed married women that 
dealt with abusive husbands and very difficult relationships. And the first one that comes to mind is St. Monica, St. Augustine's mother. And um, she, her husband was pagan and, and uh, also abusive to her. And it takes heroic virtue for someone to rise in that relationship. And, and so I don't know that there's any words that could make it easy, but definitely I would direct that person toward the lives of the saints. There's also Blessed Anna Maria Tyge. She lived with a husband that was, he, would, he was a rager. He would come home and literally turn over the dinner table. And she would just keep it together and for the sake of her children. And like I said, we're talking about heroic virtue here. So it's a difficult thing. Um, there is a scripture verse, though, that says that God will work to a believing wife through an unbelieving husband. And so we can also find hope in that scripture that tells us that right there that he, he, does, he will. He will work to that unbelieving husband through that believing wife. And the unbelieving part of the husband can be anything. It could be the abuse. It could be whether he's part of the, part of the faith. She wants him to join the faith. It can be anything. Um, so there's also another area of hope. It is hard, though, because the other part of that is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, which is actually the more difficult part of the scripture of, on submission. So um, a lot of prayer, a lot of encouragement, and a lot of hope, a lot of just trying to lead her to areas of hope um, in those times. That would be my best advice. And obviously, you know, to a good spiritual director that can, that can kind of walk hand in hand with her through that, you know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Wait, wait till he gets there with the microphone. He'll hold it. I think you started touching on it, um, but you mentioned how women help men find their true femininity. Didn't you say something like that? That was a slip of my tongue if I did. <laughs> or um, I might have heard something similar to that, but kind of like how just the concept that women help men um, in their receptivity, they help men become more receptive to God. Okay. Maybe what you were talking about, it was when I was talking about that vicious cycle that we can get into? I honestly don't remember where okay. I heard it. Well, I'll, try, I'll do my best. Um, when a woman understands who she is and that by her very nature she's called to be receptive and to give service in love, when she understands that and she starts living that way, men will start living the way God has created them to be. Now, I'm not saying that it's all, it's all in the responsibility of women, because it's not. Because a man who's truly living the way God called him to be can also have the power to raise up a woman to be who she was called to be. It works both ways because we're, we're, we're meant for each other, you know. But, um, but maybe that's what you were talking. I mean, I, I kind of touched on that a little bit. I didn't really go into it. But that is true, that when, a, when, when women are living truly the way that God called them to be, men will respond. 
I'm not going to reveal my political persuasions, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I think this deals with both her question and his question, that uh, there's this talk of, dis of men you know, discovering the feminine in themselves. I think there is, there's a truth to that, I think, and the truth is that woman is, <clears throat> Christ is the prototype. I mean, he, he is what we are called to be, but woman is the archetype to a certain extent spiritually for human beings that we're called to be before God. Uh, one of the fathers of the church said before God spiritually we're all, we're all woman. In other words, we're all called to be receptive. And, and if a woman in that way gives witness to that, gives witness to, our, to the necessity to, for men to be receptive because we're not naturally receptive, but that they, they give witness to that absolute need for receptivity before God, um, then I think to that extent, a woman shows, gives witness to men what we are called to be. And then through that, and that's where I think the whole word submit, that uh, Christopher West calls it, he said that submit means, sub means under in Latin, and then mission. So put yourself under the mission. What's the mission of the husband is to lay down your life for your wife. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a pretty radical mission. So it's saying, I submit to allowing you to serve me. <laughs> that's, that's what the mission is. Mm -hmm. And that's not so easy, that's not so difficult. And I think when it's understood in that light, um, but uh, uh, that whole, I think that has to be drawn out more, you know, that, that the spiritual, um, and that's why Mary is sort of the archetype of Christianity, it seems like to me, that she, uh, it's that whole the notion of receptivity, um, uh, that it's not passivity, but that it's, act, it's an active mm -hmm. thing. It's not really a question. Right. No, sorry. that's fine. Anyway. And I'm glad you mentioned Christopher West, because also his theology of the body, his uh, interpretation of the theology of the body of Pope John Paul II, and also he has a series of tapes called Naked Without Shame, which goes much more in depth um, with the whole anthropology did I say that right, Chris? The whole anthropology of men and women, and he takes it much more deeper than I was able to do tonight. So I'm glad that you mentioned him. And, um, and there is some truth to what you did say as far, and I have read many saints do talk about that. And they actually say it's easier for a woman in the spiritual life because of, by her nature, she is receptive. very challenging conversation uh, um, with some religious sisters and it really um, I don't know it was very hard for me we were talking about um, you know the male female role and and it was my understanding that in the church as a religious if I were to be a religious sister that I would be the bride of Christ and that I would have that marriage and I was told by the sister then that marriage was a very strong word and that um, that that's not actually what happens and it I I felt very confused and frustrated after that you know I look at Blessed Mother Teresa and I never sh saw her stand up and say more rights for women she 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 went about her beautiful amazing life and and I just wondered I guess I if you could comment on kind of how to deal with a conversation like that and where the church stands in that situation? Well, um, 
First off, if you felt like you were getting nowhere in a conversation, then I think, like, I always just take the notion, not in a prideful way, but, well, I know that what I believe is what the church believes, and, and, and I know that that other person is not embracing that. And so, like I said, it's not in an attitude of pride. It's just the truth about the way that it is. And if, if she's receptive to hearing about what you have to say or what you know, then I, could, I would say you could go forth in a conversation just talking about some of the things that, that I talked about, like just in, by, in being a woman, not even a religious. In being a woman, she's called to be a bride and a mother, period. And so that's her very nature. And then, and then to transfer that to religious life, she's the bride of Christ and mother of thousands of people, you know, I mean, whoever God brings into her life. She still has that maternal spirit. So if you could get to a point of having a conversation based on, okay, let's take the religious life aspect out of it. Let's just talk about how God created women to be. Then maybe you could move into, and that's how that transfers into religious life, and this is how it transfers into married life, and this is how it, is, how it looks in a generous single person's life. Does that help? Shannon, along with what with, um, Melita was talking about, mm -hmm. another way maybe to look at it too is that um, the church itself is the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. And at the end of time, um, the church will be wedded to Jesus. It talks about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And a religious, as a religious, she is the image of the church and the image of what it is when, when the church is wedded to Christ. And so by her very nature of dedicating herself to Jesus and um, showing the image of the church, by that very act, she becomes a bride of Christ. Because she's supposed to show the world what it is to be, to be the church, to be a bride of Christ. And, and marriage between a man and a woman is just an image of that also, the image of the church and, and, and Christ being wedded together. So they're really... The marriage of, the, of religious to Christ and a marriage of a man and a woman are really mirroring the same thing, the image of Jesus and his bride mm -hmm. being married. Thank you. It has been said it's my understanding that the, the church is female, therefore priests are male, there's, there's the, the marriage there. If the church is female, and the female is also female, what's that relationship as far as it's not a marriage? Will you say that again so I can get it in my brain? If, if, if the church is female, yes. um, therefore males, they're, they're it's a marriage between males in the church or priests in, in the church. What would the role be with a female in the church then? Because they're both are female, correct? Yeah. Um, my understanding, and please step in if I botch this. My understanding is that 
because because a woman is a because a woman is a woman and the church is a woman, she actually they kind of represent each other. And because a man is a man and a priest is a man and Jesus is a man, they kind of all represent each other. Okay? So are you asking what is the relationship with a woman and the church then? That would be the second part to that, yes. Well, she she sort of is, is it okay to say she's an icon in a way, as far as like being able to see the church. We, we, women can almost be um, looked at in the same way that the church is. We are to be receptive. We are to serve in the same way that the church is to be receptive to Christ and to serve Christ. So we would be more in like the same type of a relationship with the church to Christ, whereas a male would be more like in a same relationship with Christ to the church. Do you want Chris to go on a, a little bit further? Okay. Church is feminine, but it's not female. Well, female yeah. is, is a very specific. Um, yeah. It's a sexual connotation. Feminine, it's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily have that same connotation. That's what I meant. Yeah, that, yeah, we're talking about the same type of, yeah. Any other questions? Okay, thanks again, Shannon. Okay, thank you very much.